Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. It's hard to believe that we are almost 60 days or so away only from the election. It feels like we've been in constant election mode for four years, <laughs> but um, we're coming down into the home stretch and the both conventions are over. We're approaching Labor Day and this is really where it, ratchet, it ratchets up a notch or two or 10. Um, so I, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about my, my thoughts on the RNC and some other things going on with Kenosha and um, some other national security stuff happening. But my guest this week is a prominent historian and professor and author by the name of Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She specializes in authoritarianism and she has been following what's been going on in sheer horror, like many of us, with Donald Trump and just watching the very um, authoritarian-like ways that Trump has been um, governing, ruling, behaving from the Oval Office and and his enablers in the Republican Party and what they've allowed him to do. So stay tuned for my conversation with her. It's fascinating because she really puts it all in a historical context. Like what we see, that's what's going on, what we see is not normal. This is um, very alarming, particularly to people who are students of history and, and political science. Um, watching what's going on. So stay tuned for my conversation with her. And uh, she's going to talk about her forthcoming book as well called Strongmen. So there's that. But before I get to her, talk a little bit about my reaction to the RNC. I am not going to spend a lot of time on this because I feel like it's already been discussed ad nauseum. We all saw what we saw, right? It was a clear contrast between the way the Democrats handled things compared to the Republicans. Um, the idea that Biden brought up during his speech of, of light versus darkness was very apparent. It was on full display during the RNC. Um, that first night of the RNC was so batshit crazy. I just couldn't believe it. That Kimberly Guilfoyle and screaming like a maniac into an empty, you know, um, room like that was I, I jarring. I'm like, what happened to her? I, she used to be the nicest person. Um, I, I did a panel with her in 2016. I used to be at events with her in New York sometimes. She was always really, really nice. And then she's turned into this like wild, crazy person since she's, uh, you know, partaken in the Trump Kool-Aid. It's a, uh, it's a shame, but that was uh, just nuts. I'm not even going to get into Don Jr. <laughs> And um, how he looked and behaved, that was just, uh, you know, I don't know what was happening there. But that first night, I'm like, if this is the tone for this whole thing, they're in trouble. Uh, clearly, somebody got the memo because the nights after that were not quite as um, <laughs> batshit crazy as the first night. But you still had people who were just saying things that were blatantly untrue and um, just creating this false picture of Trump being somebody's family man and that I care so much about people. And oh, wow, I wish people could see the Donald Trump that we see. Bullshit. Okay. Um, so, but the, the final night when they decided to do this big, the, the, the big announcement, the big uh, speeches from the South Lawn of the White House was despicable. Um, 
I just, it, it made my stomach turn because the White House should never be used that way. There's actually laws in place to avoid that called the Hatch Act, which is very, like almost never enforced, unfortunately. And this administration has violated it umpteen times. But that was just so, you're not supposed to use the trappings of the White House and federal employees for campaign purposes. So that entire event, besides the fact that there was no social distancing, they had 1,500, almost 2,000 people on the South Lawn, uh, no masks, almost hardly anyone had on a mask. And then Trump's entrance, like some South American dictator coming from the balcony of the White House, giving that speech was just, it, it just, it, that I hope we never see that again. I really do. No politician should ever be pimping out the White House that way. And then afterward, they carried that over to the Washington Monument with the fireworks display that said Trump in fireworks 2020 over the Washington Monument. It felt like North Korean dictator level cult of personality. I I was just, ugh. So, but on another note, the production of it at least, like partisanship aside, the production was actually quite nice. And I fear that a lot of people may look at that and say, well, you know, he looked presidential. It was, you know, it's that, and get that warm and fuzzy feeling about like, oh, you know, yeah, like that's the way it should be. And I worry about people falling for it. Don't fall for it, folks. Please don't fall for the okie doke. That acceptance speech that he gave was just nothing but mendacious meandering. He was lying his ass off. Um, and an interesting thing is that some of the language that he was using was really, really just over the top. So you could tell that there were a couple of speechwriters, including that Stephen Miller. I don't think that that's news. People know that Stephen Miller was involved. But using terms like Biden's going to be the destroyer of, of our democracy and, you know, the whole law and order thing. It was just so ridiculous. Um, it was but it went on for like 70 minutes and he repeated himself and he looked terrible he was sweating. Um, he was holding on to the podium, slumped over. Like it just wasn't a very high energy Trump. And even Chris Wallace over at Fox News made a comment about that, that it wasn't his wasn't his best performance and it was pretty low energy. But the language, that whole it was very dark, very ominous, and he was painting a picture of an America that he's actually president of. Like he, I guess, forgot that. He's presiding over all of this, which is the irony of of this message coming out of the Trump campaign about, oh, beware of of what Biden's America is going to look like. It's going to be, you know, wild eyed, crazy Marxists taking over our cities. And buddy, this is happening now on your watch. So um, I was glad to see that that Biden finally came out and gave a really strong speech about this to counter that, because frankly, I thought they were being entirely too passive and they were starting, the Biden folks were starting to lose the narrative. You know, a part of a good propagandist is you constantly repeat simple concepts over and over again. Doesn't matter whether they're true or not. And that's what Trump is very good at doing, right? Why do you think he constantly yells law and order and tweets it in all caps and all of that? That's, that is part of his propaganda attempts and it works for less informed people. So I was worried, but Biden came out strong and gave a hell of a speech. He was spry. He was, you know, forceful and unequivocal 
in his condemnation of the riots and the looters and the violence that's been going on in response to the shooting in Kenosha. And this is an area that I just really don't, I just don't understand. Um, well, before I get to that, one last thing about the RNC, uh, Tiffany Trump is a wannabe Ivanka and no matter how hard she tries or how much she tries to breathlessly sound like her sister, she'll never be Ivanka and Trump will never love her the same way. Same thing with the other kids. The desperation for them just to get daddy to love them and notice them was so obvious throughout this whole, the whole RNC. It was sad, but Ivanka is as much of a sociopath as Donald Trump is just better dressed. She is, uh, she is just ridiculous. And her speech despite how untrue and unrealistic it was, was the best delivered speech and made the best case for Donald Trump's reelection than anybody else. Yeah. And, but she's just so out of touch and, and just dishonest and it's, uh, and a sociopath like her father that it's, uh, it's scary. So if that's not enough of a reason to want to vote them all out, cause you're voting them all out. We don't, we don't want any more Trumps anywhere near the white house ever again, come November 3rd. Um, and of course, they acted like COVID didn't exist. Hardly any mention of what's happening. Hardly any mention of a thousand Americans dying a day. Hardly any mention of 180,000 Americans that are sick and counting. I mean, they're just acting as like it doesn't exist anymore. And that's not going to fly. The The economy is, is still in shambles. Businesses are closing left and right. 100,000 small businesses have shuttered since then. Millions of people are still out of work. I mean, they, they're not going to be able to es- escape this as much as they try to wish it away. And Biden recognizes that. The Biden camp recognizes that. And I think they did a really good job of presenting a contrast. Um and the idea of light versus darkness. And which leads me to this whole law and order thing in Kenosha. So, you know, since the last podcast, there was another shooting this time in Kenosha, Wisconsin of Jacob Blake, another, um, black man shot in the back. There's some questions about whether he was reaching for a knife or what was happening. Was this excessive use of force? You know, these things are are not always as cut and dry as they seem, which is why I've been reluctant to be out there as vocal about this um, as some other ones, because I just have a different perspective. I don't have an emotional reaction the way a lot of other people do because I grew up in a law enforcement family. I'm married to a law enforcement officer. So my, the way I react is very analytical at first. Um, you know, I think about the other aspects that the average person doesn't see or ask, right? I mean, at first glance, it looks horrible. Why are you shooting this guy in the back in his car? Um, then, but then when you start to get more information, you find out, oh, well, he actually resisted arrest beforehand. He wrestled with officers and got away from them. There was an active warrant out for him, warrants actually. And so they had to arrest him that day. You know, when you, some people are like, you know, why did they just leave that man alone? He was trying to break up a fight or he was just at a barbecue or whatever the narrative was in the beginning. It wasn't quite like that. And People need to know that if officers are aware that there's an active warrant, they have to arrest you. There is no, oh, well, you know, call the courthouse on Monday and work it out. No, they are duty bound to arrest you. And then you have to work it out with the court system yourself. So, you know, I just don't understand why... I mean, not saying he deserved to get shot seven times, but if you don't resist arrest and you cooperate, chances are it's not going to escalate. 
And so, you know, there's multiple steps here that went wrong that ended up leading to the shooting. Should the officer have shot him seven times? No, probably not. That's too much. Um, but, you know, they need to have body cams. That's another thing. In Kenosha, they don't have them. It's my understanding that they were voted on a couple years ago, but they never provided the funding for them, which happens a lot in these smaller localities. That funding becomes an issue. They, they spend the money other places and they don't make it a priority. I'm assuming that will change now. Um, but... You know, there's just, we need to, we need to allow the investigations to play out. That's true. But at the same time, you know, it's, I understand that people get frustrated because if you have police officers that are not properly trained, which is also another problem that needs to be addressed, this is what happens. They may overreact or they make the wrong decision. But when the president of the United States runs around saying that, oh, well, officers just choke, he choked right? This is his new thing now that, that, well, there are some officers that choked and that's a terrible thing. You don't ever want to see that, but there are some that just choke like a, like if you're playing a golf game and you miss a putt, I could not believe the president of the United States actually said this with a straight face. But then again, I could because the guy's a sociopath and he just doesn't, this is how he looks at it. Like this is a freaking game. This is not a game. People's lives are at stake here. You know, on both ends, lives are at stake and you're comparing it to a freaking golf putt. When he gave that interview with, with, um, Laura Ingram the other night, he said a lot of batshit crazy stuff. Then, I mean, he's just getting crazier and crazier, really. And she tried to bail him out. She even tried to bail him out on that when he started going down this whole, oh, it was like choking, like a golf putt. She was like, oh, you don't really, you're not really comparing lives to golf or whatever. Yeah, actually he was. Cause he said it more than once. First of all, that is so insulting to law enforcement officers because, you know, a good law enforcement officer doesn't choke. That's number one. That's just like a pilot. People's lives are at stake. You have to be the best, you know, most well-trained and understand what, you know, what's happening because people's lives are in your hands every single day. It's the same thing with a law enforcement officer. So you don't just say, oh, well, I guess the pilot choked. Like that is horrible. And I don't, I mean, give me a break. But this guy is all pro-law enforcement. He's got everybody believing that he's also pro-law enforcement. Bullshit. You know, if he was so pro-law enforcement, why is he still traveling all over the country, exposing his secret service details to coronavirus with no masks? Right? Why is he doing that? He's being a selfish bastard because he wants to get reelected at all costs. And he's got these guys traveling all over the country. And then all the local officers and all of the people who are involved every time there's a movement for the president exposing them. And he still refuses to wear a mask at these campaign events and things. There's no social distancing. Oh, but you're pro law law enforcement. No, you're not. Just like with the military. How long has it been? It's been over two months since we found out about Russian bounties on American soldiers in Afghanistan. Trump says nothing. Like my guest in the last podcast, Greg Keeley talked about and his group CAMSEC and how upset so many guys in the military are. Speaking of that, Lincoln Project also just launched a uh, veterans coalition, a bunch of retired military guys and spouses who have come on board because they're just disgusted by Donald Trump's treatment of the military and the national security risk that they feel that he poses. There are more and more of these people who see this. Trump looks at these people as his own personal props and he will use them 
to manipulate the public and create false images to do whatever he needs to do to get elected. And those are, that's just completely unacceptable. But back to Kenosha real quick. Um, so yeah, so the whole, the Jacob Blake thing, I feel terrible for his family. I think it's awful that his kids had to see what was going on. There's a lot, you know, there, there are a lot of aspects of this where there's responsibility for everyone's behavior here. And, um, that need to be investigated and talked about. But I mean, personally, I think, yes, yeah, seven shots is excessive. The other side of it is too, that you don't know when you, when someone turns their back, they've already been non-compliant. You've already tried to arrest them. They've resisted. You've tased them. They still resisted. Now they're walking into their truck. You don't know what they're reaching for. He could be reaching for a gun. It happens all the time, especially on domestic calls. Domestic calls go awry often for law enforcement. This happens far too often. Domestics, car car stops, and car accidents are the top three most dangerous things for cops. It's what kills them. So people just need to kind of take a breath, but it's hard to do in this environment, you know, because there are, there are, there are legitimate questions about injustices and, and police brutality for the reasons I've already named, where you have officers that are poorly trained. You have, you know, certain systems that are in place that allow for those, those prejudices to not be weeded out. You know, that these are legitimate things that need to be discussed that aren't because Donald Trump and his acolytes are pushing violence. They're inciting, they want to incite this violence. They think it's good for them. They think it's good. Kellyanne Conway said, said it out loud. Well, yeah, sure. This violence and it's good for good for the president's reelection because then he can say, sit, sit there and say, like, be the savior. I'm the one, only I can fix it. Remember? I'm going to talk about that. That's also an authoritarian tactic um, that Professor Ben Giat talks about. So these are things that I just wish the left would cut the shit. Stop this looting and rioting. That is not the answer. You're not going to get anything solved that way. You are just handing a lifeline to Donald Trump's campaign. Where would this campaign be if it weren't for this nonsense going on? It, it would, they would have nothing. What are they running on? Law and order and the, and the looting and rioting. I don't care if it's only a handful of people in two blocks in Portland. It doesn't matter. Perception is reality in politics. And if they keep seeing these, these people, millions of people who watch Fox news and listen to talk radio, this is all they see is Portland on fire and Kenosha neighborhoods being burned to the ground. They're going to have this fear. It's going to begin to get creep into the zeitgeist and, this is a problem. This is a problem. And Biden needs to continue to give speeches like he did on uh, the other day, debating, uh, debunking this nonsense about him being pro defund the police. He's not. He was endorsed by police unions years ago until Trump. Okay. He's always been um, seen as a tough guy. I mean, he wrote the crime bill for goodness sake. So which is it? Is it he's too soft on crime or he's too tough on crime? It's they have, they need to decide. But Biden also made a good point about this, too, where he said, you know, he condemned the looting and rioting and said that, that that's lawlessness and it needs to be prosecuted. And he's right. And I don't know what these mayors are doing in Portland and Kenosha and places like that. They need to get it under control. Trump's right about that. But because this is going on and on needs to stop. This is bullshit now. But what happens is it breeds vigilante justice, which is what happened with this Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17 year old wannabe law enforcement officer picks up his AR-15, goes across state lines to be part of a militia call to action to protect the businesses in Kenosha and ends up shooting three people, killing two. And Trump can't even bring himself to condemn that. 
No, because he wants that. Those are his people. And I've said this, and you will hear me repeat this throughout the election season. I got it from Carl Bernstein, the famous journalist. He said that there's a cold civil war percolating in this country. And I'm saying to you that what we're seeing Trump say and do and people around him, they are trying to turn this cold civil war hot. And that is dangerous for the country. And I fear for our country if that's the road we're going to go down. But that's why Joe Biden and Kamala and 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 all their surrogates have got to keep hammering this message home that lawlessness is not okay. But we also need to be able to address the underlying issues of why people are upset. And that's certain racial injustices in policing and in our criminal justice system. So we'll see what happens with that. But, you know, I, I, I hope that I hope that Biden is continues to be tough because they cannot. Trump is just saying all kinds of crazy things and will continue to do that. In that interview with with um, with Laura Ingram, he was talking about people on dressed in black and masks with gear on planes, flying places like complete batshit crazy again, just conspiracy theory nonsense. No different than him continuing to talk about the election being rigged and how there's, you know, if he loses, that's going to be why we don't know who the who the winner is on election night. It's because it's rigged. Come on. He's trying to lay the predicate here to question what's going on. And we, I just don't know how we have 60 days or so to combat this. I just hope the American people don't fall for the okie doke. Um, during the RNC, we had a counter convention. I don't know if some of you followed the convention for founding principles convention. Yeah. For founding principles convention on founding principles that was put on by stand up Republic and principles. First, I had the honor of being one of the speakers. I submitted a speech on um, the importance of protecting freedom of the press. And I, I just can't emphasize that enough. You know, you can be mad at the press. The media doesn't get it right all the time, but our founding fathers were adamant about including free the free press in the constitution you don't hear about political parties in the constitution but the free press is there because they understood that an informed citizenry was imperative to protecting liberty and we need to remember that every time you hear trump going after journalists the media enemy of the people all that stuff that is to take away what the an, an indispensable tool of bringing information and facts to the pre- to to the people and to hold government power accountable. That's a tactic. He's doing it on purpose. So, so I'm glad if you guys didn't see it, you can go on YouTube and um, the convention on founding principles and see my speech there. It was like about 15 minutes and um, hear what I was talking about. So, but I, again, these are just things that we all need to continue to pay attention to. Speaking of something else. Oh, one last thing about this whole Kenosha violence in the streets, law and order. It's working for some people because before, before, you know, earlier in the summer, you saw a lot of folks, including white America being supportive of the black lives matter movement, not the looters and rioters, but you saw the protests mainly peaceful. Since then, Support for the Black Lives Matter movement has dropped 10 points, right? Because people, reasonable people who are looking at this going, well, wait a minute, what is this looting and rioting? I don't understand. I'm not with all of that. And I get it. I'm not either. But those folks are co-opting the call for racial justice in this country and that racial reckoning that needs to happen. They're co-opting that, but it doesn't matter because they're making the association. Trump's people are making and Fox News are making the association 
that this is what Black Lives Matter stands for. And that's dangerous, especially in a, in a state like Wisconsin. Let's be honest, people. Donald Trump won Wisconsin by only a couple, I think 11,000 votes. That's not a lot. Biden needs to win Wisconsin. So this is, they have to be careful that this message doesn't resonate and start to take a hold, take hold. You know, when you've got the Kyle Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouses of the world now becoming cause celebs for the right. Yeah, this kid is a murderer, but he's now being held up as a martyr. Well, what do you expect? Tucker Carlson said, well, these people are destroying neighborhoods and you, what, what do you expect? People aren't going to take up arms to protect their stuff. That is irresponsible. So irresponsible. We do not live by vigilante justice in this country. And that's how more people get killed. But this is what they're doing. And this is what we're fighting against. And it's, it's, we need to really just be careful. We need to be aware of what's going on and not accept it. Speaking of being aware of what's going on, a um, couple other things real quick before I bring in my guest, Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Um, so there's reports now that have come out that, that the, that the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, will no longer brief Congress in person about election security and election interference. They're only going to submit written reports. That's just another example of this administration not wanting the American people to know what's really going on here, whether it's with Russia or wherever. That is highly unusual. By only submitting written reports, it doesn't allow members of Congress to ask questions and challenge what's going on. So let's not forget that Trump installed former Representative Ratcliffe, who was completely unqualified to be the DNI, so that he could have his own person in there, a lackey, messing around, basically turning the DNI into another politicized partisan uh, extension of the Trump campaign. That position was never intended to be that. And, but here's another example. Then we find out that the Department of Homeland Security had a, an, an election interference report about Russia doing what they do, but even worse again this time, that never saw the light of day because the acting Secretary of Homeland Security, who's basically illegally in that position, Chad Wolf, his people said, no, 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 we're not going to move forward with that. What? Again, they're trying to say, oh, there wasn't enough information there credible to pass it along. That's bullshit. So here we have the president's Praetorian Guard, again, keeping this information from the American people and from the people who need to know what's going on when the Russians are freaking doing this. And so are the Chinese and so are the Iranians, but in other ways. And one of the things that they discovered that the FBI discovered was that they were pushing this narrative about Joe Biden's health and his and his mental capacity. That is a Russian propaganda talking point that Trump and his people have picked up and they're doing Russia's bidding again. They tried that shit with Hillary and they we also discovered that Facebook had to take down this what was supposed to be some left-wing magazine that turned out to be a Russian front operation where they used deep fake pictures. That means they took artificial intelligence to create a composite of someone's face. It wasn't even a real person. It wasn't like they took somebody's photo and used like put a fake ID. No, they used artificial intelligence to create a person's face to look legitimate, to be the front of this left-wing magazine so that they could divide the Democratic vote just like they did in 2016 with Bernie and Hillary. 
but it was all fake. It was all from the Russian, Russian IRA group of GRU people that 26, that they were involved in 2016. This is happening every single day, folks. We have, we can, I mean, and this administration is turning a blind eye because they know that they, they are welcoming Russia's interference. This is dangerous. And the last thing in, on this front, this is all came out in the last week for goodness sakes, Bill Barr is being Bill Barr again. And you know, this is a dangerous guy. A couple podcast episodes ago, I had Ellie Honig on here and I asked him, is Bill Barr the most dangerous man in America? And I just fear that in his position as attorney general, he's able to enable Trump and facilitate a lot of shady shit. And it worries me. And here's another example. Um, Bill Barr just reassigned a 23-year veteran of the Justice Department. He's a career official, a career lawyer, who was the head of the this office. It's a little-known office, but a really important one. It's the Office of Law and Policy. And it's part of the Justice Department's National Security Division. So what did Brad Wegman, his name is Brad Wegman, what did he do? Well, his office was, they're responsible for basically telling the FBI and the Justice Department and, you know, others what's legal and what's not. What are they allowed to do with surveillance? What are they allowed to do overseas? You know, is is this appropriate or isn't it? They're kind of like the Office of Legal Counsel, but a little bit more specific to national security interests here domestically. They replaced this guy with some 36-year-old who has no experience in this area, who's only been in the government for six years, and he's a political appointee. So he's a partisan. What are you doing switching out a guy that has 23 years experience, 12 years in this position, with who is a total nonpartisan career guy with some 36-year-old partisan lawyer who has no experience in it, unless you want to mess around with potential legal rulings leading up to the election. This is not a good look. But these things get, they don't get enough attention because so many things happen with this administration. So another example of how these people are, Trump is surrounded by enablers and allowing them to do all kinds of things that are just shifty, that as, a, as, the, as voters, we just cannot allow and we would never allow if it were anyone else. So remember to register and vote, vote, vote. On that note, I'm going to bring in my guest this week, historian, author, professor, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. He's up next. Considering the times that we live in right now, I thought it would be really important to bring someone onto the program to talk about the rise of authoritarianism in in this country and the concepts behind that, what we're watching go on. Because a lot of times you've heard me and others warn about how Donald Trump is an existential threat to the United States and an existential threat to our constitution. And sometimes people think that that's hyperbole, but um, I don't believe it is. And there are others out there who are experts in these areas that have been sounding the alarms also. So my next guest is one of those people, Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She is a historian. She has a PhD in comparative history. She's a professor at NYU. 
Um, she specializes in authoritarian regimes, and she's the author of a forthcoming book, Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present. And I'm pleased to welcome her as a first-time guest on Honestly Speaking with Tara. Welcome, Professor ben Giat. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here to talk to you. So you recently wrote uh, an opinion piece in reaction to the Republican National Convention for CNN.com. And I follow you on Twitter anyway. I've been following your work for some time because I find your expertise in this area to be fascinating and informative. Um, But you wrote a piece for CNN and I, I... found your reaction to the RNC to be um, quite, quite alarming because it was it was as bad as I thought it was. I I guess I wasn't the only one who looked at this whole spectacle and thought, my God, what have we become? Um, But in your in your piece, you say it's titled for Trump. Reality is just a prop he doesn't care to use. You say authoritarian leaders make everyone in their lives props and a spectacle designed to keep their enemies at bay and them in power. What did you see when you saw the Republican National Convention recently and Trump's acceptance speech? I I saw a man who has, in some ways, is doing the same things rhetorically and as he did that to get himself to power. So using scare tactics um, and using kind of propaganda in the classic way of saying everything's great, I'm bringing you to greatness. But what really struck me is that this show of optimism and the whole making America great again was taking place uh, in the middle of a a true disaster, a public health crisis, um, you know, economic uh, mass unemployment, uh, unrest uh, that that he has caused millions of people can't pay the rent, and there were uh, rows of people gazing up at the leader with no social distancing and no masks, including all of his um, cabinet. Only only one, the health, Secretary of Health and Human Services, had a mask on, and I thought, look how far he's come <laughs> in in his uh, quest to create an an alternate reality, which is what authoritarians have always done. You say uh, in your piece that uh, you compare his speech in 2016 to now, and you say that he's just become more emboldened in his authoritarian designs to protect white privilege, criminalize dissent, and turn the Republican Party into an instrument for the consolidation of his personal power. Uh, What did you see that stood out? I was like, yes, I was cheering you on the entire time I was reading this. Um, But what did you see specifically that that you noticed that that changed from that from the tone in 2016 to now. Yeah, it was really interesting to compare the two speeches because a lot was the same, the emphasis on how the United States is a kind of a wasteland and we're in a crisis and only he can fix it. Um, the idea that he is only the president of some Americans, and now that's much clearer to many people. But when he said, I am your voice in 2016, mm-hmm. he, he really, uh, he was, many things in that speech, he was telling us he was only going to be the president of a certain kind of white person, and, and the rest could kind of go to hell, you know, which is indeed what has happened. <laughs> but it was also... Um, 
it was very alarming to see what had changed because the imagery of the enemy in 2016, many of them were foreign, sort of illegal immigrants trying to get, you know, in the country, uh, Middle Eastern terrorists. And what's transpired, especially this year, is that Americans are now the enemy and Antifa and they're trying, he's trying, you know, he and Barr are trying to have them, labeling them as domestic terrorists and the whole, that whole episode of militarizing DC and turning force, you know, uh, armed forces and national National Guard against mm-hmm. Americans. So Americans are now the enemy, <laughs> certain kind of American. So that it was extremely alarming, and it 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 kind of dug down on the events that he was highly criticized for in Lafayette Square, and shows that he he's really only governing for a certain base of his, and he doesn't really care if if many people viewed it as not successful. And he's going to keep escalating violence and doing what worked in 2016 to remain there in, 2000, in 2020. Uh, when you, you brought up the Lafayette Square incident, and I've talked about this often because I was sitting here in my house and I watched it live, play out live on, on television. And I often talk about how I cried tears in real time as I saw that unfold. Like I felt this, um, this <laughs> I'm part Italian, so I use the term agita. I felt this agita mm-hmm. in my stomach where I, I just could not believe that I was witnessing this on American soil ordered by an American president. What did you, did, when you watched that, when you saw that, what was your reaction? Um... It, the same, um, and and actually a huge sense of dread because I had I just finished my book and I spent two years in the heads of authoritarians, uh, mostly right wing authoritarians from the fascists to um, there's a chapter on military coups, so Pinochet, mm-hmm. and of Chile. course what happens then in Chile in 1973 is the you know, the military gets turned on its own people. And this is part of the trauma. And I have long said um, that Trump is indeed a kind of right-wing authoritarian. And many of the people around him have worked for right-wing authoritarians, like uh, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort Mm -hmm. worked for Mobutu in the Congo. Um, There's a lot of, and of course we know that, you know, Putin is influencing the whole authoritarian playbook. It, it influences Trump, and so when he um, when he did this and started to tear gas and beat the protesters in Lafayette Square, and then walked and held the Bible as a prop, this was a this was like a, a distillation of the things that authoritarians have done in the past, and so it it filled me with dread because I. I, I I didn't doubt that I was right, and unfortunately, I haven't been wrong. I've been predicting what Trump would do since before he came to office in 2016, 17 mm-hmm. rather, and I've always been right. And I thought, my God, it, it's this is the next phase where the American people will be the enemy. You know that that idea that the that Americans are enemies of each other is something that uh, has. Uh, 
it's concerned me for quite some time. You know, I, as a conservative, I used to think that, oh, it was the progressives and the leftists that are creating this us versus them. And, um, you know, and I, I look back at what I used to think was the tactics that they were using to do that. And it really was nowhere close to what we see now. I mean, Mm -hmm. now we are really, really in an us versus them in a way that I don't think many of us have seen in in recent history since we've seen it in other authoritarian regimes um, mid 20th century in World War II. but the idea that um, that Americans like that Trump continues to foment this, that, you know, people because they disagree or have a different worldview or have a different policy perspective are somehow evil and enemies and dehumanizing and the otherism of other people that look different than you. That to me is just that is the scariest part about this is because we're starting to see Americans turn on Americans. It was bad enough when it was the, the foreigners who were the, you know, who were the threat, the brown menace coming from across the border in Mexico or the Muslim terrorists who are coming in here to blow us all up. Like that was alarmist enough. But now that he shifted to a, a, a domestic threat amongst each other, that's, I've worried about this from the time that, before he got elected, that we would end up in some type of civil war. And Carl Bernstein, who is um, a colleague of mine now at CNN, but the famed journalist of Watergate Mm -hmm. history, he made a comment that I will continue to repeat because he was exactly right. He called this a cold civil war. Yeah, I remember that. Yes. And I like went through me because that is exactly what we're seeing. And I've been saying that Donald Trump is trying to turn this cold civil war into a hot one. Mm -hmm. And you have been someone who has repeatedly said that he's been doing this for years, inciting this kind of violence so that he can become the answer to it all. You know, the law and order president, I alone, I alone can fix it. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And one of the, um, so it was really interesting to go back over a hundred years in these, um, different cases, uh, very different countries, right? So you have Italy before, right after World War One. you have Chile in the early 1970s, you have America, uh, you know, now. And one of the things that is the constant is um, that there's enormous polarization and that these figures come up um, and they gain a following by dividing us from each other. And they also gain a following by um, promising to like, in a sense, turn the clock back on a lot of social progress that's happened recently. But Right. Make America great again. Right. Yeah. That idea of great making it great again as if it's not great now. And where are you turning us back to exactly? (laughs) Yeah, that's that. So there's this combination of utopia where there's a distant there's a future led by the leader. um, And in many regimes, he's called the guide. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's divinely anointed. So that's another thing. Check when Pompeo and Sarah Sanders and everyone said he's he's Trump is sent to rule by God. So I was like, okay, check that off. Right. Um, Not only them, you had the entire evangel, almost the entire evangelical base and pastors and everyone else telling that, telling their flocks that Donald Trump was sent by God and he's the chosen one. And he, Trump himself has said it, that idea, that 
that phenomenon has an, has been another part of the Trump era that has just been sickening to me to watch how the evangelicals have done this. But carry on. That's another check in yeah. the authoritarian playbook. <laughs> so, you, so you have like a utopia. And then at the same time, you have nostalgia. And and obviously, each historical situation is different. So Mussolini had he actually, you know, he was like the Roman Empire. We're going to revive the Roman Empire. Um and everybody finds their Erdogan in Turkey today is into the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. So they all have their thing. If Trump, you know, it, it's kind of turning the clock back to a time when white men, you know, ruled and there was no, you know, social, uh, there were there were no equal rights. You could discriminate. You could grab women. You could do what you wanted. So he he markets. He sells that white male power uh, very very effectively. Um, so. So, so that's part of it. Polarization is part of it. And so he's been doing everything possible um, and inciting violence has been part of that from the time he, um, in January, 2016, he said, I'm, I'm going to shoot someone, you know, I could stand on fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose any followers. And this to me was a huge red flag. And I ran home and wrote an op-ed for CNN about it because Mm -hmm. this hugely alarmed me. And in a sense, when they gave him the nomination after that, it was game over, uh, in terms of the GOP and the GOP, I think something that if we stand back, which is hard to do, uh, GOP had already become a highly authoritarian party, um, and what they lacked was the leader. And and what happens is when these guys p- appear on the scene, they kind of coalesce and channel all these anti-democratic and extremist tendencies that were already there, right? Because a lot of the the toxicity in American culture, Trump didn't. He didn't invent, you know, f- 500 million guns in private hands. He didn't invent militias, but he gave them focus and he gave them legitimacy from the White House. And so this is what they do. They come in and they know how to channel the worst impulses of society, and they're very successful at it. Now, that would raise that's um, would raise a lot of eyebrows for people to say, well, what do you mean that the GOP had already become an authoritarian accepting kind of or pushing party? Uh, Give some examples of where you saw that starting to change, because the party of Reagan would might argue that that's not true. You know, Reagan was the one who fought against authoritarians, stood up to to mm-hmm. Russia and well, the Soviet Union, you know, tear down this wall. So where did you see the GOP starting to become uh, an enabler of this? I think that with the Tea Party, you mm-hmm. uh, you had what it's 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 a really interesting um there's some comparative politics studies that have come out recently and they opened my eyes as well um because I'm coming to study America in a sense from the perspective of um global history. I'm not an expert in American history and it's allowed me to see things in a way in a in a in a clearer framework. Um so the some of the platforms of the the recent GOP, um, these compare you know political scientists have compared them, and they actually are not centrist at all. The attitudes about like basically the GOP, uh, you had a kind of right wing populism that started with the Tea Party, and the extremists became more mainstream, and you also had a kind of giving up on the idea of bipartisan governance. Mm-hmm giving up on the idea of mutual tolerance. 
and giving up on the idea that of working together and sharing common values that there is a commitment to democracy. And this had this had kind of disappeared or in many, not in all, certainly. You had John McCain, you had Mitt Romney, you had many people who still were in this frame. But it had started to drift in a different direction. And then it's as though Donald Trump kind of accelerated all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that um, there there will be volumes written about the um, ultimately, I think, could be the demise of the Republican Party if Donald Trump is reelected. But the shift away from the party of Lincoln, the party of Reagan, um, to becoming the party of Trump and and how, you know, he didn't just happen overnight. You're right. Um, you know, Tim Alberta's book, American Carnage, paints a, a very interesting picture of kind of that evolution over time and how we kind of got here. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's a fascinating point of, um, the shift around 2010 and nine when the, when the tea party emerged and what happened there, um, in your CNN piece in reaction to the RNC, you also point out, um, some of the enablers and how, how the Republican party has enabled Trump to kind of, uh, b- become what he's become. Uh, talk a little bit about how, with other strong men, they didn't do this alone. What's the role of enablers? Yeah, that's it's really important. They can't do it alone, and they depend on. They have their mass followers whose job is to you know cheer them on, and they're doing a kind of being the spectacle. And then, but they need they need elite elites uh, to let them in the system. And this is the tragedy that over and over you have extremist candidates or unstable people, often with criminal records. Uh, a high percentage of strongman leaders have came into office under investigation or with criminal records. Check. And, it, and everyone <laughs> knows, but they let them in the system. And so um, Jeff Sessions and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan all were these mainstream politicians who early on, you know, let him in the system. Um, and gave him legitimacy. And that's why I mentioned this uh, January 2016, uh, talking about shooting someone. This was Trump testing the system. This was a very strange thing to say as a political candidate in either party. It's just not, it's not, never, no one had ever spoken like that. And this was him doing his intimidation and letting letting them know that he wasn't going to act like normal politicians and that he would consider himself above the law if he were elected. So one of the principles is that authoritarians actually almost always tell you what they're going to do. They, they tell you who they are very clearly. Mm -hmm. And when the GOP gave him the nomination after that speech uh, and many other episodes, they, they were in on the game. So they have been, you know, all along. And, and another thing that's really changed uh, to go back also to the uh, talking about how, you know, the party of Reagan is, is different than the party of Trump. A lot of the earliest uh, emails I would get from readers when I started writing for CNN were from people who 
had were retired military, lifelong conservatives. Um, one man, he was a submarine captain for years, and he called himself a cold warrior. <laughs> and the thing that that made him really upset was to see that they were um, the, the change in against Russia, that now they were colluding with Russia under Putin, whereas before, you know, Reagan had stood up to authoritarianism. And the GOP's ties with Russia, quite apart from Trump, they, so many of them have deep ties with Russia, from Wilbur Ross to McConnell. And so they, in their individual lives, are enabling authoritarians. And so the, it's almost as though the political culture of the GOP, uh, of the leaders, has shifted. Um, and again, Trump came along and kind of um, gave focus to it, and he domesticated the party and made it his. And I guess the last thing I'll say about this is um, – you see, it happened with Berlusconi. So he's somebody who ruled in a democracy, but he ruled as an authoritarian, as a strongman leader. The, his party became um, all wrapped up in his defense, and he complained about witch hunts. That's right. And he and he complained that he was a victim of the press and the left and the prosecutors. That's all he did was whine about being a victim, and his party. It became reduced, like a lot of its time and energies were about defending him and smearing his enemies. And so over time, these parties, uh, the same thing's happening to Erdogan's party. He, he complains about witch hunts. They all, do, they all do the same thing. And over time, the party loses any of its identity apart from this, this leader. And they get kind of eaten up by the leader. You actually, you actually talk about that um, in in that CNN piece, yeah, where you say that the the fact that the RNC had no platform this year, and how that it was just that's historically inconsistent with what usually happens when you're at a party convention. You know, the Democrats, Republicans, they they present their governing platform. What they, if we're in power, we're voted in. This is these are the priorities, policy priorities that we will. Uh, pursue. And you say that that illiberal leaders strip politics of all meaning beyond paying homage to their person. It literally becomes a cult of personality. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And um, it's a little too easy when we think about individual figures who, for example, Lindsey Graham, who was quite outspoken against Trump and then, you know, suddenly turned into truly his biggest, one of his biggest enablers to the point where um, Lindsey Graham actually had himself photographed, this is maybe a year or two ago, watching Trump speak on the TV. And I couldn't, this is one of these moments where my eyes like bugged out of my head because there is an entire um, genre of authoritarian art called watching the leader. Oh my god. <laughs> and gosh. people people had themselves painted like listening. It used to be the radio, right? Before TV. Um, there's a whole like tradition of this. And so here comes Lindsey Graham sitting in front of the TV, having himself photographed watching Trump. Oh. So so you know it, That makes it, my stomach turn just listening to you describe that right now. And I didn't even see it. <laughs> it's it's crazy. So you know, sometimes people uh, who talk about Lindsay's change and just using him as an example, talk about, oh, he must have been blackmailed. And, you know, we don't know what, what the truth is, but in a way, it's too easy to think that they're all blackmailed. 
because some of sometimes there's a truth that's even more upsetting, which is someone like Lindsey Graham may have found Trump's recklessness and Trump's um, lawlessness thrilling. And so what a, a lot of politicians in history who formerly were upstanding individuals or, or generals in the Chilean military who were total, you know, for the Constitution, and then they became like Pinochet's torturers. Mm. These people, they're not all blackmailed. It's that they find this exciting. They find this freedom to do things that were illegal exciting. And that's a very sad um, fact about human nature, but that's how it's happened in the past. That so is when we, fascinating. Yeah, when we think of all these individual cases, you think, well, why is there's so many of them? Right. What happened um, to them? Right. We often find ourselves asking yeah. that question. Well, what the hell happened to Lindsey Graham? You know, what the hell happened to Marco Rubio? We can go down the list. It's getting longer. Yeah. Um, that is a fascinating dynamic about this that I don't think I have ever considered. No, so and, and you can't. The, and I hadn't when I first started, you know, covering the campaign for CNN stuff. I I hadn't really considered it either. Was only spending, you know, two years in these 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 contexts of a uh, hundred years of this history that these patterns became clear to me, and so that left me more alarmed about um, America now than ever. Wow, it's um. <sighs> I just don't think the American people that the, the the regular folks out there, you know, not the ones that live and breathe this like we do, but just people out there living their lives. I just don't think they understand how dangerous this presidency, the Donald Trump presidency is for this country and how uh, and how much worse it can become if he's reelected. I, I just it just makes me wake up every day with a renewed sense of purpose of doing everything I possibly can and, you know, and help elevate others and their platforms to sound the alarm bells, to get people to wake up and pay attention to what is happening in this country. Like, I just don't know that the American people get it. Well, and you've been you've been a, a real beacon, you know, for for the whole Trump presidency so far. You've been very outspoken and very lucid about it. And it's really important to have um, voices uh, from different political perspectives who believe in democracy. <laughs> you know, you, you may have been a conservative and I'm more of a liberal, but we both believe in democracy and basic rights. Amen. Um, so. I think I think it is hard for people to grasp, and in, in part, it's because we we have such a tradition of democracy. For example, the respect for the office of the presidency and the figure of the president is actually has hindered us from understanding that the present occupant is not like the rest of them. Mm -hmm. um, he's not like George Bush, uh, any of the Bushes. He's 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 very different, and he's actually not there to govern in any democratic sense. He's there for a different purpose. He's there to make money off of the presidency. That's why he's going to his Trump properties every weekend. And he's there to dominate. He said in Lafayette Square days, he said, if you're not dominating, you're wasting your time. That's right. That's not, that's not what um, any, you know, these previous peacetime presidents uh, would ever say. So it's been nor hard, was, I think. And to, nor was that what our founding fathers envisioned for yeah. the president of the United States. They were yeah. quite concerned about making sure 
whoever the occupant is, was would not become that type of authoritarian. They just fought a, a, a war of independence to get away from that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, it's a it's kind of a paradigm shift, like a frame shift, and it's been it's hard for people to accept that because part of it, it's very scary. I've been scared. I mean, there are pieces that I wrote very early on uh, in Trump's presidency that scared me while I was writing them. <laughs> I bet. I <laughs> and, bet. <laughs> and and the other, so people don't want to be scared. And also sometimes people don't want to accept that something's really bad because then they might have to do something about it. They might have to change their lives a little bit. Uh, they can't just, you know, compartmentalize politics as something you just watch when you get home from work. Um, and we're used to that. We've never been invaded by a foreign power. We've never had a, a national regime. So we're, we don't really know. Um, we want to just keep on keeping on, and that doesn't work now. Right. You can't just keep put, putting your head in the sand saying like, this isn't, oh, that's just politics, right? We hear this all the time. Oh, this is not, this is just what politicians do. And he's not a politician. So he's going to, he's going to do, he, we, we put him there to do something different and, and, and upset the system because, uh, and it's like every rationalization possible other than to face what's actually happening, happening in front of you, we've heard from Trump supporters because they rationalize and explain away things that they would never have tolerated if it had been someone else. If Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton had done a fraction or said a fraction of the things that Donald Trump has said and done, Republicans and and uh, Republican elected, a few, uh, elected officials would be screaming from the rooftops, but yet here they don't do that because, like you said, they they don't want to face it because of a, of a couple of reasons. Some of them might like it. <laughs> uh, that's a scary thought. Others are looking at just holding on to power. You yes. know, they don't want to upset the apple cart. We can just make it through this guy. You know, our six year terms will out will outlive the, the Trump presidency. So we'll just sell out until it's over with, which is just political cowardice to the nth degree. Um, it's, uh, that kind of leads me into this idea of being scared, uh, into mm -hmm. what we're seeing going on in, in our streets now and Trump's involvement in this, you know, back to the idea of inciting what's happening in Kenosha, what's happening in Portland and, um, and other places where, you know, the black lives matter, racial justice movement started off peaceful, majority of the protests were peaceful, but then of course you had some of the agitators and things taking advantage and trying to co-opt what's going on. And Trump saw that as a lifeline and saw that as um, a tool to use. I mean, Kellyanne Conway said the quiet part out loud, for goodness sakes, where she said that, that the chaos and lawlessness helps Donald Trump politically. Mm -hmm. And you reference that strong men do this, that they, you know, that they incite violence or um, create these types of situations so that they can come in and be the saviors for the most mm -hmm. part. Um, give some examples of where you see Trump doing this, because it's not just what's happening now. And do you think it'll work? It's been very effective in history. So 
so there's one of the things he's they, and and all of these things that he's been doing them for years. And so he is a very skillful propagandist and propaganda works on re repetition. Mm -hmm. So for years now, he's been hammering home certain messages. And one of them is trying to lump together people like Nancy Pelosi and Biden, who are moderates to into the quote, radical left. And this is part of polarization. And and making this kind of survivalist, you know, black versus white, us versus them. And, and so the RNC speech kind of just officialized this saying that Biden is a Trojan horse for socialism. Right. So, a destroyer, so right? Didn't you yeah, call him a, a destroyer, destroyer, for goodness sake? A say. destroyer. So that's one scare tactic. Um, another is to indeed go from cold to hot. Uh, even if it's not civil war, because really only one side is extensively armed. Mm -hmm. uh, the Trump side, the militia side, um, the Second Amendment people, as he calls them. Um, not not all people who own guns are Republicans, of course not. It's it's part of American culture. But the, the ones who are energized, um, which is a word Trump uses, which is really interesting because that's a word that right-wing people use. Mm -hmm. uh, so... He needs there to be violence. He needs there to be chaos um, and or the perception of chaos. And that's why he keeps saying that Portland is burning when and Portland's not burning. Right. It's like two um, blocks. So, yes. It's a problem. You know, what's happening there? Yeah. They need to get it under control. I don't know yes. what their leaders are doing, but it's not the entire city of Portland. It's like two blocks. Yeah. So he's, he's a masterful propagandist in this way too. He, he takes a tiny grain and he, and he, you know, makes it into a, a generality and that's an old tactic. And he's been doing this before he was president for many, many years. Um, he's very skilled at it. He has people around him who are very skilled at it. So that threat, um, the threat of, of the enemy, um, he, so that's part of it. The other is he himself um, is threatening and he intimidates people. So it's a combination of making your enemy into um, an existential threat and being threatening yourself. Um, and he successfully uh, threatens in various ways, uh, everyone from his, you know, colleagues on the Hill to um, random people he targets on Twitter. And we can't underestimate the effect of being threatened by the president. Um, it, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's amazing to me that so many people are afraid of this guy because he is the biggest coward walking the planet and he's just mm -hmm. a scared little boy. And it's obvious to a lot of us. And I I finished reading Mary Trump's book and I... Um, I just, it was a fascinating window into how this monster was created and what's really going on there. And he is actually like such a paper tiger. It's ridiculous, but nobody has had the balls to stand up to him and That's just right. tell him to stop it. And she talks about that. He's like been like this since he was a child because he had no boundaries at home. And because his, both of his parents were emotionally unavailable and his father was a sociopath and Trump has followed in his footsteps times 10. 
Um, but even where there are there are mechanisms within our system in the Constitution where branches of government are supposed to be there as guardrails, right? <laughs> like the Senate, if the House isn't going to do it, at least you have the Senate supposed to be the upper chamber. You know, maybe they'll stand up to them and say stop. You know, and no one has done this, and it's completely out of control. But he's using now the levers of power, the bully pulpit, the, the the extraordinary gravitas of the office of the presidency to fulfill every twisted, um, illiberal p- impulse that he has. And mm-hmm. we're all paying the price for it to the tune of 180 plus thousand Americans now dead due to a pandemic that he has tried to wish away and tell people it's not real. Yeah, no, I agree with that analysis. So that's uh, that's how they operate, and they have to make the country as undefended as possible, as divided as possible, um, because they know that that um, solidarity and knowledge and truth are are their enemy. Um, they thrive on negativity and scare tactics. Um, because they themselves are scared. And that's the sad thing. Over and over you see societies arranging themselves like under these leaders who people secretly know are are terrible, right? you know, demons. And yet uh, they succeed. And so the idea it can't happen here, which Americans had, um, is has been debunked. That's for sure. That's and, for uh, sure. Yeah, we're seeing it happen here every day, which is why um, the idea that he's using recycled terms and and the the pages out of the the, the authoritarian playbook are so obvious. If you are a student of history, if you're not and you're not getting factual information, then it's easy to be manipulated, which is why he has from the very beginning determined that the press is the quote enemy of the people and using that to undermine the the constitutionally created and protected i uh free press to discredit them so people don't know where to get their information from if you don't know if if we can't even agree that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west now then people are going to believe what they want. And Trump knows how to manipulate that, which leads me to um, into your book and the idea of strong men and, and what they use as tactics to rise to power and, and hold on to it, but eventually lose it. Um, the idea of calling the press the enemy of the people had to stick out to you as one of the other hallmarks of strong men and that over the last hundred years, whether it was uh, the Nazis and and their use of of propaganda and and attacking the press to Mussolini, which I know is a is of interest to you because you're an Italian studies professor as well. Um, talk about how the, the this whole idea of the press being the enemy of the people is so incredibly dangerous yeah it's i mean these these uh strongmen rulers they are expert in manufacturing uh an alternate reality um a fictitious reality so the press and uh, anyone who who traffics in facts <laughs> becomes their enemy. And 
some of them have been very skilled. Most of them have had a lot of skill. Uh, either they were journalists, like Mussolini and Mobutu, actually, in uh, the Congo were journalists. Um, or they Hitler had Goebbels, who mm -hmm. was extremely talented propagandists. And all of them really know what they're doing, how to, sometimes they have a grain of truth and they distort it. Other times they just tell what's called the big lie. But they... They've all been expert at manufacturing an alternate reality and a kind of self-contained belief system that uh, with them at the center and making themselves into these kind of gods um, uh, and everything makes sense within their universe and everyone else is the enemy. And it's very frightening to see how in different ages with different uh, stages of, me of the media, um, each of them succeeded in a similar way. And you have these cults of personality, which are very, very important. Um, and so the whole world is like self-referential and makes sense if you're inside of it. Mm -hmm. And when they fall, it can take people, um, depending on how they end, it can take a society some years to recover, um, uh, if, if it's been a total, we don't have a dictatorship, of course, we have a, a free society, um, which today, you know, you don't have one party states as much outside certain, you know, like North Korea, et cetera. Today, uh, it happens in, in a, um, inside a democratic framework and then it gradually gets eaten away. Mm -hmm. Um, and Putin's been very, very expert in, eroding the idea of tr truth versus lies. And so is Trump. And you should never be underestimated. Trump is extremely skillful propagandist. And that, and the fact that they, that he made the choice, just like these others to, to take out the free press, um, very early on, it should, is like authoritarianism 101. This is what we do. Because then if you, as our founding fathers warned, you know, Thomas Jefferson wanted us to have an informed citizenry and that the newspapers and the press, that was the way for that to happen. So they understood civically what was going on. Otherwise you become, um, the victims of the wolves of, of tyranny, you know, to paraphrase Jefferson. I recently did a speech for the convention on founding principles, which was mm. put together as a counter convention to the RNC by my friends over there at stand up Republic, Evan, McMullen mm -hmm. and Mindy Finn and uh, Principles First, Heath Mayo and the Niskanen Center, because people needed to see that these concepts were what our constitutional foundational principles are. Let's be reminded of mm -hmm. what America was founded on, people. It's not what you see what's going on now. And I talked about this uh, at the, the importance of the free press, because, you know, my mom and I often sit back and go and people wonder how Germany fell fell to Nazism, you know, mm -hmm. like this is how this happens. And it's, um, and it starts there because if you don't have trust in your purveyors of truth and fact, then w you fall victim to this. It's, um, it's scary. It's scary. I, you know, I hate for it to be so, so, you know, for this conversation to be so heavy, but this is what we're facing. And in your book, um, strong men from Mussolini to the present, uh, I just think that, you know, when people, when they read it, it'll be available in November. It's um, available for pre-order now, right? Yes. Great. Um, and and like some of the descriptions of of what you have in the book it was it was fascinating to me about the use of masculinity, um, and and how that is that portrayal. And I think 
if you look at some of the weirdo QAnon images and some of yeah. these things that these images of Trump in a, you know, a, as a boxer or, you know, with this, you know, with guns on a tank, like that stuff is so it's not new. I, I just can't believe that this is coming up. Um, I want to ask yeah. you a little bit about Mussolini <laughs> because I don't think we talk about Mussolini enough in this context. Oftentimes we refer to, you know, Hitler and Nazism, but there is a reason why I think that you, he chose from Mussolini to the present because of his fascist, um, you know, his fascist ways and Donald Trump during his July 4th, um, speeches when he was at Mount Rushmore talked about left-wing fascism. Can you please explain to people why that doesn't exist and what fascism actually is? Yeah. Mussolini, um, he, 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 he gets a, um, short shrift, uh, Hitler learned, many, many things from Mussolini and Mussolini lasted twice as long as Hitler and Hitler was, uh, besotted with Mussolini and constantly trying to, you know, learn from him and contact him and trying to get his photo. And so, so Italian fascism was the template for all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a kind of what they do. It's a, in the book, I break it down to these different tools of propaganda, violence, virility. So like the strong man and corruption, and all of them have a slightly different way. They weigh all these things, but they're, they're all, they're all doing it. And, um, Mussolini had been a socialist, a really revolutionary socialist. He was very violent early on. And then he, he invented this new thing called fascism, which took certain things from the left, like the idea of revolution and violence, uh, idea of propaganda, but was for not, not at all for worker liberation, uh, was for the nation over class. And he was the one who, uh, he was in power 10 years before Hitler, Hitler learned a huge amount from him. Hitler then took it and souped it up in his own terms. And, you know, the rest is history, Mm -hmm. but, um, and Mussolini was extremely able, uh, all of them are extremely able actors. They're all very, very good with the media, uh, up through Mobutu and Gaddafi. Um, even Putin in his own weird manner is very, very able. Um, even so Saddam kind of Hussein a, had Baghdad Bob, if we all remember yeah. those days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a kind of a playbook that they have. And each one obviously has a different uh, way of doing it that suits their national context, but um, it it's it's a heritage that um, we we haven't reckoned with enough, and it kind of crosses geographical lines. It crosses left to right. It's sometimes um, Gaddafi was a man of the left, but yet he learned a ton from Mussolini. Um, then there was an idea of kind of left-wing fascism, which really was just to try and um, uh, co-opt uh, the, the amount of revolutionaries that have been in Italy over to fascism. These men are very, very skilled at playing with our minds mm-hmm. and adapting doctrines to fit um, their purposes. And some of them uh, are very intellectual. Others, like Trump, just have extremely good instincts. So one thing I'm often asked is, like, does Trump really know what he's doing? Is he consciously basing himself on, you know, fascists, for example? And 
he did have a book of Hitler's speeches. Uh, his right. wife, his first wife, uh, you know, testified this. He had Art of the Deal. And he had Hitler's speeches. That's kind of like himself and Hitler. <laughs> That's a perfect coupling. Yeah. Um, but they, they're very instinctual. They're performers. Um, and they they don't really uh, learn from books. Certainly Trump doesn't. Uh, and one of the saddest things is that they never expect to get the amount of power that they receive. And that there the, the burden is on us. Uh, we fall at their feet instead of opposing them. And then conformism takes over and fear takes over. Mm -hmm. But what's really the saddest thing is that Trump's been able to do this in the context of a democracy. Um, some of these rulers, you know, instituted concentration camps early, firing squads early in, and in 20, you know, in our century, that is less common. Um, but they know how to exploit people's weaknesses. They know how to blackmail people. They know how to scare people. And they use the same tools over and over for a century. Um, and it always looks a little bit different in each country. Mm -hmm. But um, Trump is the American version. Would you say he's the American version of, of a Mussolini? Who would, you he, say, who would you say he resembles the most? He 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 takes from a lot of people. He he actually has uh, certain similarities with Mussolini in terms of his um, physical presentation, jutting out of the jaw. Um, he Mussolini was uh, much more of an intellectual. Trump is a man of TV. So he Trump also he takes from Berlusconi who was the TV master, the master performer. Um, he kind of takes from different people, but the result, the result is the same in that they create these cults of personality where everybody is arranged around their power and they're able to change society's directions. Uh, and it was perhaps already going there and they coalesce all these tendencies and then they're able to create huge destruction. Well, I think that um, there are a lot of Americans out here who say no, that that's not the path they want this country to go down. Um, I just pray and hope that there are more of us than the other side who seems to continue to enable Trump and um, like what they see. But that's why we have elections. And that's why um, we have to make sure that everyone registers, votes, and gets their votes in, and we protect our the integrity of our election, because that's another area where it, it's under assault by Trump, and he knows it. Um, and there are certain just certain tenets of democracy that are that have to be in place that the that the electorate has to have confidence in, in order for this American experiment to, to survive. And Trump has been attacking all of them. So um, I hope that people uh, get your book. Do you, what's the exact release date? Um, it's being released in early November, but just after the election, but you can, um, get it, uh, you can pre-order it now and I'll be doing, um, you know, other media about it. And so, um, 
Yeah. Pay attention, everyone. Please pay attention to what's going on. Pay attention to smart folks and intellectuals, historians like Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Follow her on Twitter. Uh, Be sure to pre-order her book because regardless of what happens during the election, I think the American people could always use some more knowledge and information and historical context about where we are. Uh, The the book, again, is Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present. Uh, Ruth, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Again, big thank you to Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. What a heavy conversation, but I feel smarter and more informed for it, and I hope you do too. That's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and also be sure to follow what Lincoln Project is doing. We've got an announcement coming up for Lincoln Project TV that I think you guys will be very happy to hear about. So take care and see you next week.